This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, so I'll just tell you, um, uh, thank you so much for the introduction. That was great. I'll tell you kind of an update on um, what we've been doing with the platforms um, that you just heard about. So my lab really um, is interested in, as you heard, human pluripotent stem cells. Um, and we spent a lot of time trying to understand the derivation of uh, new uh, lines using human-induced pluripotent stem cells, the Yamanaka factors, OSKM, um, as well as in comparison of these to human ES cells to really try and understand um, the uniqueness or similarities of these two pluripotent stem cell lines. And the beauty of pluripotent stem cell lines, as you know, is that they can differentiate into any germ layer, endoderm, ectoderm, mesoderm, and so, um, also as a member of the Center for Addition and Muscular Dystrophy, we've been developing disease models um, in a dish to try and develop uh, new tools as well as human models for studying um, devastating muscle diseases such as Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And along the way, we have been really trying to uh, develop protocols to initiate skeletal muscle differentiation because really this has been a challenge and a, and a bottleneck in the field. Um, other lineages such as neural have been you know, pretty straightforward, but development of skeletal muscle have really lagged behind, and I'll tell you why that is um, today. And so, um, really, we've been just kind of focusing on these two parts, developing uh, a therapeutic correction strategy as well as um, directing cells towards muscle cells um, in a dish. So, many of you are familiar with Duchenne, but Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a devastating muscle-wasting disorder, and there um, is no cure. It's um, X-linked, and there essentially is due to um, mutations in the largest gene in the genome, dystrophin. Um, and this is shown here. Dystrophin is a critical linker um, between the uh, muscle. Um, here you see the muscle sarcolemma, and which uh, connects to the dystrophin glycoprotein complex in wild type, which is then lost um, in Duchenne. Um, and without this, the muscle cell really becomes unstable um, and eventually dies, leads to muscle cell death. However, there's an allelic disease um, called Becker muscular dystrophy, which is due to N-frame mutations. And interestingly, these mutations often occur um, in this repeat-like region. Um, there's really a hotspot region of mutations for these patients. Um, and in Becker, there's actually in-frame deletions, which actually restore. It's a truncated protein, albeit still functional. Um, and this enables restoration of the DGC um, and improves function. You can see here, this is, I don't know how well you can see this, but this is looking at a um, cross-section of muscle. And you can see beautifully um, lining of the muscle. You can see dystrophin um, positive staining in normal and then no dystrophin in DMD. And then in Becker, you have restored dystrophin, albeit it's not completely 100% back to wild type, but you do restore levels of dystrophin that are thought to be um, able to restore some functional gain. Um, and so a lot of groups are thinking about therapeutic strategies um, to really utilize um, this allelic disease Becker to restore the reading frame to turn a Duchenne into a Becker. 
And so we wanted to um, think about developing DMD iPSCs uh, in the lab, but, but specifically with an idea to um, generate a disease model for those uh, patients that have a hot spot a region mutation, which is turns out to be mutations in exons 45 to 55. Um, and so in the clinic at UCLA, we were able to obtain patient fibroblasts with mutations um, within this region, um, either 46 to 51, 46 to 47, duplications. And we were able to derive pluripotent stem cell lines from these lines. These are carotidally stable, form teratomas. Um, and we asked the question of, now that we have these unique lines, can we think about a therapeutic strategy um, that would enable us to restore dystrophin expression in these lines and then let us model um, the differences in the Duchenne and, and Becker cases? And it turns out that um, at UCLA, we have a fantastic muscle biologist. Her name is Melissa Spencer. Um, and we actually have a shared graduate student, um, Courtney Young, who was really interested in this project. And so with Melissa's uh, real expertise in DMD and my interest in human pluripotent stem cells, we had a graduate student that really wanted to tackle this project. At the time, CRISPR was really just becoming, um, I guess, a household name. Everyone was trying it, and now I think it's you know, widespread used across many labs. But we really didn't know if we could use it as a way um, for a therapeutic strategy for Duchenne. And one of the things that we thought was, okay, if we're really going to move this forward for Duchenne, we want to develop as, as little guides as possible, right, to really understand um, using the CRISPR-Cas9 platform in a, in a safe manner that could potentially target as many patients as possible. And so we developed a strategy that we thought might be a little bit crazy, but we just thought, let's just remove this entire region um, where this hotspot mutation is. It's a little bit crazy because it's 725 KB, and so we thought this may not work. Uh, we might not be able to remove this region. We actually developed guides in the introns, um, and so we're just asking the genome using non-homologous end-joining once cast cuts um, at our guide sites to piece this back together and make a Becker-like protein. So we didn't know if it would work, so of course our lines that we chose had different size um, uh, deletions, and so um, this would render the distance of removal different, um, and we wanted to just test and see, can we remove this entire region um, to restore functional protein? And another reason we did this, this is modeling, um, was that this deletion, in fact, many others have spent a large amount of time in the field trying to understand what's required in dystrophin for a function, and Jeff Chamberlain and many others have shown that if you mutate, in fact, this um, larger region which contains these spectrin-like repeats that actually the protein is more functionally, um, the protein uh, is, looks and, and is more functional um, as shown here in these models as opposed to single deletions. And so that was another reason why we wanted to consider this strategy. And so, um, long story short, we were able to actually get the CRISPR-Cas9 um, deletion strategy to work. It's still uh, inefficient, but the inefficiency is due to the um, lack of ability to get good um, you know, infections or transfections. In this case, we use nucleofection in human pluripotent stem cells. And so, getting um, everything in one cell um, is you know, still, I would say, like probably 1% to 5% efficiency, but it's okay because then at that point you can make clonal lines. 
which is something that my lab has really you know, studied for a long time, survival of these cells. And so um, we use this as a tool to generate stable lines that had in-frame deletion of dystrophin. And so here we're looking at, at deletion, and you can see across these different lines, this is a 106, 3, and different clones of this. We also have a 108. You were able to restore dystrophin. Um, and this is these lines after deletion are still very potent. In fact, it's non-homologous in-joining, right? So the genome does whatever it can um, to piece back together, and you can get different size insertions um, or deletions. Importantly, and these cells are keratognormal, not all of the clones we derived were. This is a challenge in the field. Um, a lot of times when you ask these cells, you stress them to make a clonal line, they become aneuploid. So this is a very critical point. You need to very carefully evaluate um, the genetic stability of these lines. Um, and so we picked clones that were genetically stable, um, tested them, they were able to make teratomas, and we did a you know, small mysic analysis of potential um, target sites, and we didn't see any um, off targets, which is great, but we're now we're doing a more whole genome analysis uh, to view this. Um, but I remember when we saw this data in the lab, everybody was basically throwing a party because we didn't think it would work. Um, but in fact, we were able to restore dystrophin, and we did this in the affected cell types, right? So shin muscular dystrophy patients are affected in skeletal muscle and the heart. And so we tested in cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells. You can see restored dystrophin here in the reframe lines as well as in skeletal muscle. Um, and so we're able to remove this entire region um, and generate an in-frame, and you can see um, truncated dystrophin protein. So we were very excited about that. Um, Courtney wanted to really ask how functional is this dystrophin we're producing, and we're still testing this. Um, but so she had to develop a stress assay um, with cardiomyocytes and skeletal muscle, and basically um, looking at CK release, which is really a measure of muscle stability. And what we can see, what we found essentially in this stress assay is that um, in our reframe lines where we deleted 45 to 55, we were able to see um, less CK release in our reframe lines similar to wild type. So the membrane definitely is stabilizing when you restore dystrophin. You also start to see um, regions of the DGC complex coming back where you have restored dystrophin. So that's exciting preliminary data that the platform is able, at least in vitro, to restore some level of dystrophin in the cells. So. What are we doing now? How do we really move this platform forward for Duchenne? And um, so in, in my mind, there's really two approaches to think about this. Um, there, are, there are others, but these are the two that we're thinking about, really, which is to directly deliver the CRISPR uh, machinery in vivo um, to correct skeletal and cardiac muscle. Um, using standard viral vectors like AAVs, um, AAV9. It's an exciting time right now in the Duchenne field. There's a lot of, um, you know, preclinical and also clinical trials going on right now with AVs, and so that's, that's really an exciting avenue, and I'll tell you about our progress there. We're also trying non-viral approaches, um, such as nanoparticle-mediated delivery. Um, I won't share with you that today, but I'm happy to tell you about our progress on that. And um, secondly, the other alternative would be to consider um, generating an ex vivo corrected progenitor cell um, or stem cell from a uh, human pluripotent stem cell line, either cardiac or skeletal muscle, and then deliver these back in vivo. Now, that's beautiful um, on the screen, but both of those have you know, considerable challenges that we're faced with. So, 
Um, to really start to address the uh, CRISPR in vivo, um, Courtney developed a novel humanized mouse model, um, which we call Human DMD Dell 45 MDX. And so she actually took an available Human DMD um, mouse um, that was made originally in the Netherlands, and we mutated this. So this has a human dystrophin gene, and we mutated this with CRISPR um, and generated an out-of-frame human DMD. So now we have human um, dystrophin out-of-frame. We crossed it to the MDX, or the more severe model of Duchenne, MDX-D2, uh, to make the, the Del 5 MDX mouse model. Uh, this, this, this new mouse model has um, dystrophic phenotypes. Um, this is wild type. Um, this is just different examples of, um, of different muscles, the gastroc or the diaphragm. You do get some revertent fibers, and so we have to use antibodies specific to exclude any revertent fibers. And this is interesting because this is a Dell 45. They're thought to have some revertent fibers anyway, but we're, we're carefully monitoring that. But you can see these mice have dystrophic pathology and don't have dystrophin. Um, and so we teamed up with Jeff Chamberlain, who's one of the you know, best um, AV experts, and like I said, has spent a lot of time understanding dystrophins um, and which ones are really more stable. And so Jeff made AV. In this case, we did AV6. Um, and we directly injected the AV CRISPR platform. So um, AV has a packaging limit, and so we have to use two AVs, one with our guide RNAs and one with the Cas9, and then we... Um, inject these two AVs, IM, and you can see, I think you can see um, that we've been able to restore dystrophin and via IM. You have a, you know, a restoration of dystrophin in this IM uh, experiment. And then also when you look at systemic, it's not as efficient systemically, uh, but you do get restoration um, in muscles. And in fact, the heart had the greatest restoration. Um, this restoration is still, in my opinion, inefficient. And so depending on the experiments we're getting, range from 15 to the highest 13%. And ideally, we would like to get at least 25% or more um, to move this forward. And so we're working on ways to optimize um, this platform in vivo. However, there are a lot of challenges um, with moving AV forward for DMD. So AV is moving forward, but um, this is my little soapbox here. Um, so I think that you know, some challenges are, you know, muscle is a regenerative tissue. And so we really need to think about how long are these correction strategies going to work. And so in my mind, there really haven't been any efficient studies to target stem cells using AAV. This is still, I think, ongoing in the field. It's a fun topic. Um, and so I think that we need to think about if we can understand the biology of the stem cell better, then I think we can think about approaches to, to really get these therapies working um, lifelong if you target the stem cell. So AAV and Cas9 are going to generate an immune response, and we know that CRISPR is likely at least removing this entire region is going to be inefficient, so you're likely going to need to redose. Um, so we're thinking about trying to understand the immune response in this context, working with collaborators who do this and who think about the immune to be able to immune response to be able to redose. Um, and then we obviously have concerns with off-target, so we're doing whole genome analysis, and we do see low levels of AV integration. And so this is something that I think is not really discussed but does happen in the field. Um, and so all of these are issues that I think we need to consider for moving AAV forward. So we're continuing on this pipeline, um, but in the, same as in the same time, as I said, I'm really kind of interested in what about the biology of the stem cell and how can we think about this as well as under our understanding of the gold standard adult stem cell to generate ex vivo corrected stem cells for perhaps using um, 
what I would consider the more challenging cell-based um, therapy approach in contrast to virus. So as you all know, there's a beautiful um, muscle stem cell. I would say one of the best characterized stem cell, adult stem cells is the satellite cell. Um, and it sits on a, in a location um, outside of the basal lamina here. It has a very distinct nation location. And upon injury, these cells activate to give rise to um, a satellite cell that maintains in the niche as well as a proliferating daughter cell that generates the myoblast, which is going to eventually fuse to make the multinucleated muscle. And what about in DMD? Um, I think that this is still ongoing and interesting work, and so there's a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of labs and a lot of groups thinking about what is happening to the stem cells in the context of Duchenne. Um, and in fact, in sort of the standard MDX versus more severe mouse models, I think these are interesting questions. Um, Rudnicki and others have hypothesized that there may be disturbances um, in the numbers of progenitors that are there, um, which is in contrast to normal, where you have active progenitors that give rise to. Um, you know, more differentiated myoblasts and myotubes. And so I think this is still an ongoing question. But one thing we do know is that the, um, the transcription factors, machinery that regulate the adult satellite cells are very well understood. And so this is shown here. So PAC7 is the key transcription factor in adult that marks the, the, the really gold standard satellite cell. Uh, once activation occurs, the myoblast markers such as MyoD, MIF5 and MyoD turn on. Um, and then you get later fusion markers, um, dystrophin and others that eventually um, give rise to these mature muscle fiber bundles. So, but these cells are rare. And so we've always kind of had this, um, you know, long journey to try and understand how to make these or something that's more mature in a dish like an adult satellite-like cell. As I said, this has been extremely challenging in the human pluripotent stem cell field because a lot of the original mesoderm protocols um, induce cardiac fate because they activate lateral plate mesoderm. And in fact, the uh, limb, at least the limb muscles, are thought to arise from the paraxial mesoderm. And so really, as is, happens in all human pluripotent stem cell strategies, you need to really think about and align this in a developmental context. And so here we're looking at um, initiation of the presomatic mesoderm. And so the, again, the blastocyst and um, you know, epiblast would be up here, which undergoes gastrulation to give rise to the PSM. The somite, which is a beautiful um, you know, three-dimensional structure that is eventually going to give rise to the dermomyotome closely aligned to the sclerotome, where you start to have waves of progenitors that are expressing the favorite skeletal muscle markers, PAX3 and PAX7. Notice that they're closely aligned to the neural tube of the notochord, and so there's definitely signals emanating um, in these um, different um, tissues that are arising in development. And so one of the things that's been challenging really has to, how do we make this first step, actually, from human pluripotent stem cells? And so this is where we sort of came into the game, trying to understand um, what can we do to really understand um, how to recapitulate human myogenesis. A lot of times in mouse and human uh, specification signals are the same, and a lot of times they're not. And so it's important to really um, compare both. And it's important to know also that during developmental myogenesis, you have a wave of embryonic and then fetal progenitors. And as you start to transition, of which is really not known in human, you start to get a more defined niche um, where the satellite cells, the progenitors, start to find their home in the niche in the adult 
um, stem cell location. And so human pluripotent stem cells, really this journey to make a skeletal muscle satellite cell is not understood at all. Um, and so at least when we started this. And so one of the things that we're interested in is trying to really understand um, what are the signals that, you know, signal commitment and how do we identify what cells we're making in a dish. So this is where my postdoc Hyben came in. Um, we started a collaboration with Katja um, in Germany where we were able to get early human embryos as early as um, week four. Um, so we can get routinely uh, four to uh, nine from Germany, and then we get later stages um, at UCLA that obviously consented for research. And so we're using these as a tool to try and understand the first stage of specification from the presomatic mesoderm um, to the somite. And so Hyben just simply took these and it's really difficult in human you have to really carefully stage these um, and then to try and isolate the region it's not as, as clean as it would be in the mouse with beautiful markers um, but we started to kind of develop um, an RNA sequencing profile of these different populations where we could segregate the PSM from the somite um, and what we found, um, which was also seen by um, Olivier Porquet, which was published um, before this in Nature Biotech, where essentially you start to get activation of um, different pathways that are kind of all the key players in early development. And, and it's always a matter of timing of you know, signals and levels of BMPs, TGF betas, and WINs. And one of the things that Hyben found was that essentially you need to activate WINT. And this was the problem, right, because the driver in other mesoderm strategies was activating BMP. But Hyben found that you actually need to turn off BMP um, to initiate paraxial mesoderm fate and also TGF-beta. Um, later on, we see Wnt coming back up is important, and so we're still um, trying to really evaluate this. But just by following that simple switch of regulating Wnt's BMPs and TGF-betas early, um, we were able to generate an in vitro cell that expressed early dermomyotome markers. Of course, PAX3 is the earliest, and then we also could get sclerotome developing um, in the dish, and then we can push them just in this case, we just did a crude you know, push of these cells in standard media. I should say after the somite, really the field is unclear um, as to how to push these more towards myogenic cells. But then you can also throw them in chondrogenic media and do standard chondrogenic assays or osteogenic assays and see that you can push these cells um, from this state to cells that should arise from the somite um, in development. And this is kind of what the cells look like following this protocol. So here we're activating Wnt, we're inhibiting BMP and TGF-beta, then we re-add Wnt and FGF to try and support the progenitors. From this stage, really, we are, you know, really trying to screen to identify better factors that promote this transition because I think we can make it more efficient and it should happen faster um, in development than we're getting in a dish. But you can see these cells are myosin heavy chain positive, which is a marker of muscle. And then you can see we can get PAC7 positive cells that are growing um, in the culture. It's a heterogeneous mixture of PAC7 cells and myOD cells, um, you know, little myotubes that we can get growing in culture. So now that we have some ability to get some progenitors, um, we wanted to ask the question of what are we really making um, in a dish from human pluripotent stem cells? Because 
um, it's easy to say just because they have Pac-7 that they, oh, they must be, you know, truly the, the true functional muscle stem cell. Um, but given what we saw with the myotubes, we wanted to ask is, where is this developmentally? And, and I think that's important to really align it to a gold standard in the field. We really need to use human um, fetal tissues to be able to address this question. And so to do this, we started a collaboration with Catherine. This is all new data, um, which hopefully someday we'll publish it. Uh, it's a long journey with this project. It's been a years of collecting tissue, but it's been super fun. Um, we've been getting early, as I said, um, you know, tissues, later stage in human development. We can get juvenile and adult. As we get later in development, we deplete. Um, we lineage deplete. Here, it's difficult for drop seek. We're doing drop seek, um, and we just take the whole limb. And the beauty of drop seek is that you can flow um, cells through. It's a microfluidic system, and um, you can look at all cells in the population. So you can get an idea. Drop seek is good for evaluating heterogeneity. Um, it's kind of a cursory look. Um, you can just kind of see what's there. Um, you can actually, you know, flow your cells with barcoded beads, and then you can get the individual expression signature of these cells. And so we wanted to do this across human development as well as um, with standard protocols in the field to try and understand what are we making um, in a dish from pluripotent stem cells. <clears throat> So here you can see um, a snapshot of a lot of different um, examples of tissues here across human development. We, we kind of just generally, again, because we're flowing the whole tissue, except for later where we're lineage depleted in blood cells, um, we are just kind of looking in general, where's the muscle population? And then we'll dig in deeper to that. Um, and so this is kind of our muscle score we use to just identify cells. So this is a, a single cell plot looking at individual cells, uh, kind of reducing 3D into a 2D space where you can see individual cells that are positive for this muscle score. Um, you also get other populations of cells, which are interesting, you know, across development um, at these stages. And then you can use this really as a tool to dig in deeper um, to ask questions about specific populations in development. And so here, um, what we've done is to try and um, look just, you know, specifically at human week 17 and 18. This is sort of some of the last age we can really get successfully. Um, and you can even start to see that you can identify different populations. So this is PAC-7, our key marker. You can see that you have populations that are PAC-7 positive. You also have MyoD and MyoG populations. You have several populations of cells that are cycling or non-cycling. And you also have other cells that... You know, we're still trying to understand myo-osteogenic type cells in there that, um, you know, express different um, myogenic or osteogenic or mesenchymal type markers. You have high and low proliferative cells, um, and you can really overlay these with different um, genes within enriched niche cluster, which we're continuing to do to try and understand these populations. But one of the things that we really wanted to do is to see if we could take our samples and align this in a developmental trajectory. And so here we're just overlaying. These are two samples, um, two tissues from, from early um, and continuing, you know, developmenting tissue. And what's overlaid in red is really the population um, of that uh, muscle score, you know, compared to all of the cells. And you can look at this in a different light, which is a diffusion map, DM analysis um, in SURAT, as well as looking at genes expressed. And the point really here is that you can start to identify um, these different populations and how they segregate um, developmentally. And so you can see that we have the early um, embryo 
embryonic day five to week, sorry, week five to six here, which then progresses on um, until you get to this last stage, which is kind of a cluster of juvenile and adult um, at this point. And so we can nicely see a developmental trajectory from early human developmental myogenesis to a later stage, and then you can identify gene sets within, within these clusters. Um, so it's hard to you know, show all, but I can show you candidates of some of our favorites. One of the things that's interesting is PITX2 is, is really highly expressed um, in the early um, developing stages. Um, and these PITX2 goes down across development. Um, PAC7, it starts to come on, and you see it come, stay on in later stages. One of the things that we're really interested in is that the genes involved in different um, regulation of metabolism seem to be different. And so, for example, LDHB um, and others that are key regulators of glycolysis are really high in early developing stages, but then turn off um, as development proceeds closer to some populations in 17 and gone in adult. And then the, the negative regulator of glycolysis, T-SNP, is up in the later stages, um, postnatal adult. And so we're seeing key differences in gene expression, transcription factors, as well as metabolic signatures. And this is just looking at the, you know, our favorite transcription factors across all of the tissues that we've looked at. And so you can notice that PAX3 actually is on early, um, starts to go off, and then PAX7 is coming on and stays on. And so this is nice, um, but we wanted to really recapitulate this with sections. And so this just shows kind of what we're seeing. And so we're also doing RNA scope to verify this overlay with key transcription factors. But you can see that PAX3 is mainly expressed in the early limb. And then um, you have stages where you really, in, and this is, I think, week 17. And then an adult, you have many less PAX7 cells. And you have, actually, week 7, a nice transition period where you have populations that are PAX3 alone um, and PAX7 um, double positive. And so there's a lot happening in these early um, week six, seven to eight transitions of the PAX3 and PAX7 cells. So we wanted to then really, as I said, use this as a tool, as a kind of a gold standard to understand what are we making from human pluripotent stem cells. And this has actually been really fun because um, DropSeq gives you everything in the culture. And so it's really fun because you get to understand what are the friends that are there, you know, next to the muscle progenitor cells. And so this is just looking at Hyben's protocol at day 41. Um, and you can see that at day 41, we don't just have myogenic cells. We have other cells. We have neurons. We have neural progenitor cells. Um, those are shown here. We also have different populations of PAC7, MyoD, and MyoG. Notice that you know a lot of the you know same markers are on um, in 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 the same populations, right? So. Um, I would argue very different um, than adult. And so this is um, also, you know, other, we don't know a lot of times what these other clusters are, but we, we group them as mesenchymal fibroblasts. We haven't really dug into that population in great detail, but, but we, we hope to. Um, but to really purify, because we're looking at just, you know, everything in DropSeq, we wanted to generate a reporter to purify just the PAC7 cells and look at this in more detail. Um, and so Hyben generated a, a reporter, um, which I don't have to show you all this, but essentially we're able to um, enrich for um, 
GFP positive PAC7 cells that are able to um, isolate a population of PAC7 positive cells that are the myogenic population um, after um, differentiation. Only the GFP positive cells make these uh, myosin heavy chain positive cells, whereas the um, GFP negative don't. Um, and so Essentially, using this PAC-7 reporter, we found something interesting um, in the differentiations. So one of the things that we see across a lot of the differentiations is that there's two PAC-7 populations in differentiation. Very early on, you have a neural PAC-7 population, um, which is um, highly expressing SOX2. Um, later in differentiation, um, day 41 and 55, you start to see populations that are more of the myogenic populations arising. And so what we don't know is, is this population there to support the you know, development of the myogenic cells, or is it a bystander? Is it a transition state? Um, we, we need to develop some nice lineage tools to do this. But I think it's a fun question that will help us improve this differentiation strategies. Um, and so the question is essentially, as I said, where are these cells that we're making from pluripotent stem cells, where do they align? So one of the things when we, we combine the in vitro and the in vivo samples, so remember this is a DM analysis of the stage one through stage five with the juvenile adult here, the different embryonic to fetal here. Um, if you look at the overlay with the PSC-derived cells, you can see that they developmentally align um, with some pr proportion of a transition between um, fetal embryonic to fetal. And so at least in Hyben's protocol, what we're seeing is kind of this alignment. These are the PSC derived with, I would say, somewhere between 7 to 12. And we need more samples in this, in this region to really define this. Um, but again, very distinct from the populations, um, even in late fetal um, or adult. So we're making a very, at least with a gene signature, early population. <clears throat> Now, that's not just with Hyben's protocol that we developed, but we checked all their protocols published in the field, um, and we're happy to do this. You know, we want to use this as a tool to really identify, you know, what we're making in a dish from pluripotent stem cells. Um, and these are just similar. This is a um, Shelton and Shaw, and you can see that we have very similar, you know, populations um, across the different protocols. So we're all kind of making this early, um, you know, embryonic to fetal-like population. Now, what are the differences in these different populations with regard to um, networks? And so here, again, we're teaming up with Catherine, who developed a novel um, single-cell mega-network um, analysis to really deconstruct co-regulated gene groups from the single-cell RNA sequencing data. Um, and I won't it's, you may, but essentially, you have to. You can see that we have clusters that are PSCs, embryonic, fetal, and adult, and so we have networks that are specific that we think are co-regulated within these clusters. And these are some of our favorite candidates right now um, that we are really trying to use these really as a tool and as a benchmark to understand these different states. Um, what Hyben is doing right now is kind of a crazy experiment where he's trying to overexpress these key um, fetal markers um, and look to see if we can push ourselves more to a fetal state um, as well as um, these postnatal candidates. And we're trying to see um, how these modulate transition states um, and how these networks are co-regulated um, in these different transitions. And so hopefully next time I can tell you um, how those experiments are going, they're ongoing. 
But what about functionally? And so I showed you gene expression, but really how functional are these cells? What are the measures of function of skeletal muscle? Well, really the ability to fuse um, and generate myotubes in culture, um, as well as to engraft and restore myofibers um, in vivo um, for a myoblast-like state. Um, and so you can see here um, that if you take pluripotent stem cells, these are just two methods that we looked at, you can see that they make myosin heavy chain positive cells, and you kind of already saw that, what I showed you from the um, she Hybens protocol. Um, and then if you look at what's happening across development, you can see that these are more similar. Again, it kind of recapitulates our um, sequencing signatures of an early fetal-like cell in terms of functional potential. So the fusion ability is really low. Um, in stark contrast to a real um, adult satellite cell that fuses beautifully in culture is like knocks your socks off when you see it. It's like, wow, these are the most amazing muscles you've seen. We don't see those uh, from PSC-derived cells, but we're getting there. Um, so, but what about in vivo? So, um, uh, Michael, a postdoc in the lab, wanted to really, he's very interested in engraftment, and he really wanted to ask what happens if you put these cells in a um, DMD mouse model. So we use the standard DMD model, MDX. We cross these to NSG, um, and we essentially look to see <clears throat> if we inject these into the TA after cardiotoxin damage. We injected a large number of cells, um, and then we look to see what happens at the end of 30 days. So we're looking for, is there any population of cells that can restore dystrophin um, in this model? And you can see that um, if you take our pluripotent stem cell-derived cells um, and look for dystrophin restoration, that's dystrophin and greed. This is a cross-section of muscle here. We're looking at human dystrophin, human spectrum, and human laminase. So red um, is marking the human cells, and dystrophin is marking restored um, dystrophin in this model. And so you can see that they don't really restore dystrophin very well. Um, but if you just take fetal cells, this is week 17, and you don't culture them and you just um, engraft them, they really actually very nicely um, restore dystrophin. And so this is quantified here. Essentially, the uncultured fetal restore dystrophin much better than the pluripotent stem cell derived, or if you culture the fetal cells. Um, and that's quantified here. And so, you know, very inefficient engraftment um, as well. So... We wanted to understand a little bit more detail. Are there maybe there's a population that is there that has better potential that if we could enrich for this, we might get better engraftment. And so here we teamed up um, with one of my collaborators, Dennis Evansinko, who was at UCLA and now is at USC. And Dennis is very interested in cartilage development. And so he was already doing RNA sequencing profiles. In this case, this is week 17 fetal tissue. And we asked Dennis if we could um, evaluate the muscle set. And essentially, when we did this, we looked for you know, any cell surface receptors that might help us enrich this population. And these are some candidates shown here. So NCAM is kind of the standard, MCAM as well. We came up with a couple of new candidates here, um, and we thought, let's test these and see um, if we can actually enrich for um, cells that can fuse better, have more myogenic cells um, in culture. And you can see here that both two of these receptors, ERBB3 and NGFR, helped us enrich for cells that um, had more ability to um, generate myosin heavy chain positive cells, which is in contrast to the standard marker previously in the field, which was NCAM, which doesn't enrich as well um, in PSC-derived cultures. 
Now, we looked at these markers. They're not a beautiful segregation, um, as you would see with like a nice um, reporter. Um, and so we kind of were trying to just understand what are these markers doing. We looked at ERBB3 and GFR, different populations. And um, what you can see is that essentially in this protocol, um, you're able to get a population of cells in this P2 that are um, increasing for myogenic markers like um, PAC7 and MIF5. The interesting, the ERBB high population seems to enrich for more um, differentiated cells. Um, and so we don't really understand this. We're trying to understand, you know, kind of what the functionality of these markers are in terms of um, generating myogenic cells. But you can see here beautifully that the double positive population riches for cells that fuse nicely um, in culture. And we did this across our D&D and CRISPR-corrected lines. And so this is nice because... Um, there are instances in the field where people say that um, dystrophic models can't fuse well. Um, we don't see that. We think that it's, you know, potentially could be line-to-line -line variation or just kind of inefficient differentiation. And this happens, right, across, you know, you all know that work with them. Anytime you might come in, the cells are behaving, you know, completely different. And so we need to understand how to keep these cells better in culture, and then but this enrichment strategy, no matter what we did, enabled us to, you know, really um, purify a population of cells that fused well um, in culture, which is nice. And so um, we're continuing to improve the, the enrichment strategy, but one of the things that we also noticed was that these still are very, you know, they're more myogenic in terms of being able to enrich for these biogenic cells, but they still don't fuse like an adult cell did. And so Michael went back and did sequencing to kind of look, and one of the things that we found was really TGF-beta signaling is upregulated and stays up in the pluripotent stem cell-derived cells. Um, and this is no surprise in the muscle world because um, TGF-beta is a known regulator um, of myogenic differentiation. And so we just, first we added TGF-beta because we wanted to see what would happen. Um, and actually, we completely obliviated fusion. It's not shown here. But then when we took the inhibitor, we could get greater fusion um, in culture. And in fact, we started turning on more mature myosin markers, um, as you can see here um, with Western blot after TGF-beta inhibition. We get better alignment of the muscle um, with TGF-beta inhibition. And so this is nice because we're starting to better improve the differentiation strategy, at least for myogenic um, fusion in vitro to what I hope will be for enabling better models for um, myogenic diseases. And so um, <clears throat> we then asked the question of what about in vivo? So if you take these cells that we've enriched, um, here I'm just showing the um, the strategy here, so we differentiate for 50 days. We use um, either ERBB3, NGFR, or double positive cells. We cardiotoxin inject. Here we actually added TGF-beta inhibition in vivo because we thought it might help fusion um, in vivo, and it, and it does. Um, and we get more cells um, fusing. When we add the TGF-beta inhibitor, um, we get an improved... Um, Engraftment, you can see here, remember, if you remember in the beginning, we basically saw no engraftment. Now we're actually getting nice pockets of engraftment. Um, and this is, you know, on average, depending on where you look in the host muscle link, somewhere around 100 to, you know, 150, depending on where you are. And so it's, you know, it's much better than NCAM alone. Um, here we're just ranking um, across the different engraftments. ERBB3 alone engrafts um, better than ERNGFR. Um, not shown here is the double positive cells, which also engraft pretty similar here to the ERBB3 um, single cells. And so 
Um, these are, you know, cross-sections looking at restoration of now we can get pockets of dystrophin restored very similar to the human fetal um, muscle cells. So we're excited, you know, we've developed a strategy to enrich for populations of cells that, you know, can now engraft. Um, but the real challenge here is, you know, again, more functional analysis of the cell because now I've told you um, genetically and functionally that we're probably making, you know, a very early um, developmental cell. And so now the lab is really trying to understand how to transition them um, further and do more robust um, engraftment assays, um, thinking about repopulation and um, strategies to push these to a later developmental state, both in vivo and um, in vitro. <clears throat> so in summary, we have developed a CRISPR strategy that we think is, is um, going to encompass um, you know, 50 to 60 percent of patients. Um, and we're trying to move this forward with both um, in vivo delivery and improving our directed differentiation strategies. And we've used single-cell sequencing to understand what we're making during different stages of myogenesis and to overlay these to try and really understand what we're making from pluripotent stem cells. And we're using this as a tool to modulate these different transitions from progenitor to satellite cell state. And so I think this is a really fun area of how do you really guide um, you know, cells towards a more SC-like state. And in my mind, there really isn't that much known uh, about when these cells enter into a more functional um, SC-like state in development. So I think this is a fun question. Um, and we're taking the same approach with different tissues in human development. So we're now engrafting these tissues from week five to um, adult. And we're using this as a tool to try and understand when is a, a real, you know, when is the most regenerative population that arises in human development? Again, because we have to get there from human pluripotent stem cells. Um, and so, so these are kind of our ongoing um, approaches, which I'm happy to talk to you about. Um, <clears throat> we have, really have an amazing group. Um, um, the, a lot of this work was done by Hyben, who did all the single-cell sequencing data. Michael did all the engraftments. Um, others in the lab are working on different things. Um, the single-cell sequencing was done in collaboration with Catherine, um, two amazing bioinformatics students, Justin and Sean, and Tom, who's doing the overexpression with with Hyben. Um, and the CRISPR platform was developed with Melissa Spencer and our shared graduate student, Courtney Young, um, who's really continuing to move this project forward um, in all of my funding sources. So I'm happy to, happy for any questions. Thanks for your attention. Thank you. Um, great talk, people. Thanks. Mm. Have you thought about, you know, when you do the engraftment in vivo, you know, do you do, you know, and run on a little wheel or anything like that to look at muscle function? And do you think inflammation might improve the engraftment? That's a great question. Um, we were just hoping to get any engraftment, so that tells you where we started. So now we have some. So um, we haven't started teasing apart is something that um, the lab is interested in, trying to tease apart in the different dystrophic environments in the, in the MDX versus a more severe D2, like what are the populations and others that are doing this as well with single cell sequencing to try and identify like how are those immune cells modulating the stem cells and, and those muscle is actually a beautiful 
um, system where people have shown that interaction with um, different populations. We have not looked at that at all. I think it would be fun um, to try and understand that biology to better either support our cell that we're putting in or, more importantly, what happens in the dystrophic environment. We've actually done all of these in MDX, so we need to go back and do a wild type and really understand you know, what's happening in the different microenvironments or niches that I think will help us understand how to improve more in graphene. But but we really have to work on, you know, focusing on getting a better cell, I think, still in the beginning. I think there's a lot of improvements that can be done. Yeah, I think you, you touched on the question I was going to ask. Yeah. Thank you again for your talk. Yeah. Um, the idea of maturing these cells in the dish mm-hmm. all the time, the mm-hmm. um, process of culturing these cells, the matrix that we use is very simple. Mm-hmm. I don't know what matrix you use. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so one other question I was going to ask you, and the process of engrafting them, and hopefully they'll survive and emigrate. Yeah. Potentially they're getting multiple cues from within the in vivo model. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering, previously we used to um, uh, grow cardiomyocytes and co-culture them with cardiac fibroblasts. Mm-hmm. Notice that they actually they mature better in the dish. Yes. I was wondering whether you could try we have and so we have a beautiful neurobiologist at UCLA his name is Ben Novich and Ben makes the most beautiful brain organoids you've ever seen and these are have you seen these brain organoids there I mean in fact there we need a muscle organoid uh, that's a separate question but we can take Ben's motor neurons and we can take enriched populations or his organoids. We can grow them with our muscle, and that immediately starts a maturation process, and it starts a um, turning on of maturation genes. The cells start to contract beautifully. It's like you've never seen it. So Ben makes these for 50 days. We make ours for 50 days. We put them together. We have two days because they start contracting and then lift off the dish. And so, but... So I think if we could do this in a more systematic way, um, these are just some fun experiments that we've done. I definitely think those neural muscle interactions are critical. I mean, it's happening in development, and I think it's going to be important in vitro. Um, whether it's going to push ourselves, you know, to what state, I don't know. But those are, now we have the you know kind of benchmark to understand in these different strategies, like where do we does that help us, and, and where do we get to? But I think that's a fun question. Um, you know, even with combining with different ECMs and different cells during engraftment. I have a graduate student, um, Devin, who's really doing that, working with Rochelle Crosby-Watson, who's thinking about the ECM, and so we're thinking about ECM strategies, um, actually working with folks here in San Diego, too, um, to think about approaches to target the ECM in this engraftment context, too. So, yeah, it's a fun question. also considering the stiffness as another parameters that you could include in your platform because yeah. tissue changes stiffness throughout development. Yeah, um, that's a great question. We have not done that. To mean like AFM looking at... Yes. Yeah, so that's what Devin is going to do now with Rochelle. Um, we're doing kind of a joint project where um, Rochelle has shown that dystrophic... Um, ECM is very different uh, than the wild type. And in fact, when we we do this experiment with Rochelle where we decellularize the tissue and then we grow our cells on that tissue, and it's quite shocking actually when you put our cells on the dystrophic environment, they hate it. They don't fuse very well versus wild type. So we we really need to think about this too. And we're just now trying to do um, ECM analysis and stiffness analysis across human development. Um, and ECM proteomics to try and look at those differences. But it's, we haven't just started. Devin's new, yeah. Let's okay. <laughs>
Thank you. Thank, Thank you, so you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.